0: wisdom in coming today, because I have a very bad cold, and I hope I will not give it to anyone or you. Late in his life, a French political writer, George Clémenceau, so, wrote a book which he called au crépuscule de la pensée, at the point when thought enters into the twilight. As far as his book is concerned, he did not keep his promise in the sense that the promise is full of understanding and vigor. But I have a feeling that I have very little to say, which is new, and yet I have the desire, in this series of talks, which I intend for this year, and which may spill over into the next season, to um, face my face and yours, present you with. An attempted understanding, and at the same time, present you with questions which remain open. Partly because they are not soluble on the level of the intellect, and, and can be solved only on a quite different level. That is. Saints know things which you cannot express. Saints in situations of prayer and of meditation when they are confronted with the uncreated light of God can see into a depth which you cannot put into words afterwards. This is what we find also very often in the scriptures. The seers, the prophets, the saints of the Old and of the New Testament knew more than they ever could convey to us. What they could do is open to us a way in which we also could become conversant by experience with that which they had learned in their own experience of God. A spiritual writer of the 19th or 20th century in Russia trying to explain what faith is said, faith is simply God's presence in us that has become of which we have become aware. But this is not the definition of faith. It's a definition of an experience to which we may be called, to which we are actually called, but which can be conveyed somehow. But we cannot put simply in words and therefore ended. Because the moment something is put, into satisfying phrases, we are at peace with the problem. There is nothing more to do. Well, as long as we are aware of the fact that our knowledge of God, of the created world, of ourselves, of men, even of things to come, depends on a continuously dynamic struggle into our own depths, which opens up onto the depths of God. Unless we do this, we become stale. We know everything. We can say everything. And we have no knowledge and no life. And this is the reason why I would like this year to take up things which we have already spoken about, things which we all have an experience of and reflect on them again and again. I remember a certain number of years ago, I got several letters from people who had been coming to my talk, saying, stop giving talks. You repeat the same things all the time. And for two years, I did not give talks. To try to come into my own self, to try to see, well, indeed there was nothing in what I was saying. And then I started, perhaps, arrogantly enough, to give talks again, because I felt that although what we are speaking about has been spoken about, there is something that opens up whenever we commune in thought and in prayer and ask ourselves questions and accept one another's replies, answers, or reject them. Because it is as important for us to accept what the other person's experience is, as it is important for us as to say yes, but it is not mine, and I have got to search on the basis of what I know and on the basis of what this person has imparted to me, what the truth is. That truth which is his, hers, mine, ours, which transcends the limited understanding which each of us has and yet unites us because it is only in the greatness of truth that we can find ourselves. And so what I would like to do is to start with the subject of this year's dozen Conference to which uh, everyone here has not been present and look at things with perhaps more detail and from a slightly different angle from the one I had taken in my address. What I would like us to do is to ask ourselves at every step of our thinking, what does one thing or another teach us about God, teach us about man,
1: teach us about the world
0: which God has created, its destiny. (coughs) And so when we turn to the beginning of Genesis, we uh, are confronted with one phrase which holds the whole thing together. In the beginning, God created the earth and the heavens. And I would like us to start, to stop for a short while, on this idea of creation. We know what we mean by it. There was nothing and something emerged. It seems to be so simple, and yet it is not because modern scientists have been discovering, discussing the question of the appearance of a visible world, and they cannot find a way of discovering a beginning for it. At the same time, the suggestion which is made by a number of them that matter existed however, incipiently, always, is not an answer. Because naturally, and it may sound absurd in the context of what I have just said, naturally we uh, tend to say, well, all right, but where did it come from? So that is not a satisfying answer to me. But also, we must look into the idea of creation and see what it implies. The creation implies that a certain moment, God willed and loved a world into existence. The two uh, words, I begin, matter because it was not simply an act of will by which God posited in front of Himself a whole world that did not exist before. Because an act of will does not establish a relationship. We were loved into existence and not simply willed into existence. And if we think of the way in which we relate to God and God relates to us, the act of creation is something quite extraordinary in relational terms because the act of love by which God calls us into existence implies that he has faith in us and that he has hope By faith, I mean that he has a certainty that we will not betray his love. By hope, I mean that he does not hesitate to do it because in spite of all evidence which history will give to him and has been giving. He does not turn away from the world he has created. He waits for the world to respond to his sacrificial love. I have, been use, I have used now the word sacrificial intentionally because love is not simply a feeling of tenderness. Love is the readiness to give one's life for the person, the persons, the beings which are loved. And the act of creation is an act of love (coughs) is an act by which God posits in front of himself a being individual or collective, which can accept or reject him. This is a tragic juncture, because we are endowed with freedom, and this freedom gives us not only the possibility, but in God's term the right to turn away from him, to reject him, to negate him. Not only to choose for evil, but to choose for the naught. To say, you called us into existence, I reject this act of yours. You willed me into uh, um, existence, I reject your love and your will. I want not to be. This is the extreme of what can happen. And when God creates a world, and man in particular, he endows all his creatures with the power to (coughs) accept his gift or reject him. This is one of the aspects of liberty, of freedom. It is not all of it, and I will go into the notion of liberty in uh, later when we speak of man. But in that at that moment, he posits before himself a whole world and gives it a right to reject Him, to turn away from Him, to say, no, you willed me into existence, you offered me your love, which means your whole life, and I don't want it. In that sense, the act of creation is a tragic act, not only from the point of view of men that may err but from the point of view of God, which can be rejected, negated, defined as the enemy who forces me into a life and a being which I do not want. There is a passage in life of Alvakum who was a Russian priest of the Middle Ages, in which he reflects on the creation of man in this particular sense. And the, he imagines a dialogue between God, within the divinity, between the Father and the Son, The father says, my son, let us create a world and create men. And the son answers, yes, father. And the father pursues and says, yes, but men will (coughs) turn away from us. And to save him, you will have to become men and suffer and die for it. And the Son says, let it be so, Father. And the world is created. It is created on the readiness of God to die for it. If we were more aware of this, I think we could not behave to God in the way in which we behave. We could not turn away from him in small and great things. And mainly, we could accept the gift of existence, even if it is painful, even if it is tragic, as a gift. And there are men and women And so many throughout the history of um, the world and of the church who have done so. We know the lives of the martyrs. A martyr is not primarily someone who is made to suffer, a martyr is a witness. A witness. Of his faithfulness, of his trust, of his faith in God. But even nearer our day, in our time, in the last 80 years of Russian history, the Russian church has produced innumerable new martyrs, new witnesses, people. Who accepted the most terrible things in life as a gift from God. A chance to be faithful to the end and to be witnesses of his and their own faithfulness. I have met one of them at close quarters. I met him a few years before he died. He was a man of my generation. He was a very young priest in his late twenties, when he was arrested and put into prison first and then to concentration camp where he spent if I'm not mistaken 36 years. He sat in front of me on a couch with luminous eyes looking at me, with total serenity and saying to me, can you imagine how good God has been to me? I was a very young priest when I was arrested and he trusted me enough to send me first to solitary confinement and then to concentration camp. And he sent me there because the authorities did not allow priests to come and minister the prisoners, but I was one of the prisoners and I could minister to them. All he saw in the tragedy of his life, in the true martyrdom in the sense of suffering of his life, was that God had looked at him and said, I can't trust this man He will be faithful. I will send him to the the point of the historical tragedy which is developing in Russia. I will put him at the very core of it as my witness in my presence. And he was not the only one one could quote, many, many others who had the same spirit, who considered that suffering, martyrdom, rejection, were gifts of God that allowed them to testify before Him of their faithfulness and before others of Him and of the fact that one could trust Him that before us, he had gone into the same tragedy, he had become men, shared all our human experience of loneliness, betrayal, of not being understood, or being rejected, of being hated, of being calumniated, and in the end of being betrayed unto death and delivered unto death. This, I mentioned as part of this talk on creation, because it is part of it. It is the in- an increasing content of the act of God. Because the moment God, created the world and gave it the freedom and the right to be whatever he it chose to be, he had already by implication accepted the incarnation and the crucifixion of his only begotten son. So that when we think of the act of creation, it is not what we very often think of an act of divine power. He willed a world into existence and then left it to his destiny, intervened from time to time, but posited it without ultimate responsibility. And so, the act of creation is an act of sacrificial love. That goes even in a way farther than this. Because from the Russian Catechism, we are told that God is all sufficient totally fulfilled in himself. He needed nothing. He needed no one. Least of all, did he need people to sing his praises or adore him. He was complete in himself. He was light without darkness. And he chose to limit himself by creating a world that had the right to be whatever it chose to be and to become. It is not enough to say, yes, but God knew that this world eventually would be fulfilled and saved. God, yeah, have me put it in such um, a way, knew nothing of it. He did not create the world by calculation, saying, oh, well, the world will go through tragedy suffer a great deal for thousands and thousands of years and then things will come right for it and therefore for me. No. He created the world and gave him freedom to choose his own way. Whatever this way, even the way of rejecting him ultimately. And then in this act of creation as we see it in the first verse of Genesis, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. The word used for creation is a very strong word. It means that he called into being what was not there. It is not a word that speaks of fashioning, but of calling into existence something that was a radical absence. <coughs> and in the beginning of the book of the Gospel, according to St. John, we are told of the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I'm not going now into the intrinsic relationship between the word and God in the sense that the Greek text does not say the word was with God, but was God words as though all his elan, all his motion, was to God, the Son to the Father. But in the given case, I am thinking of, not the intrinsic being of the world, but of his mission. And it is by the word that God creates the world now, what speaks a great deal now, in scientific uh, terms, of the Big Bang that brought into existence whatever it did bring to existence. And it strangely enough, There is this insistence of a big battle, of something which was a resounding noise and a resounding cry. And yet we know that it is not the amount of noise or the intensity of sound that is decisive. You remember in uh, the life of Elijah, when he's in the desert and God is to reveal himself to him. And first there was a thunderstorm and then there was this and there was that. All oh, tremendously shaking things. And then in the end, there was the blowing of a quiet breeze. And the Bible says, and in it was God. So that we do not need imagine a dramatic beginning of the world, a spectacular beginning, but just a quiet word of God. Come. That if, if you want to dwell for a moment on the world of one could add that it is not the loud sounds that produce the more intense results. About 30, 40 years ago, there was an event in New York that uh, puzzled scientists for a short while. The tall buildings of a small the region of New York began to shake. And there was no earthquake, there was nothing uh, happening until it was discovered that in a small laboratory in one of these buildings, they were making research on ultrasounds. That is on the sounds that are inaudible, but had such intensity of power in themselves, that skyscrapers began to shake. And so we can imagine very easily that when God created the world, he did not shout, come on, into existence. He just said, come, and said it in such a way that it sounded like a call of love and not a command to exist. That I think is an important thing, to realize that we were called, and that we were called by a God who accepted to limit himself for us to have a plenitude, a fullness of independence, yes, if we understand freedom as an ability to determine one's own destiny. A world that could reject him. And yet, a world that was connected with him at a depth that would allow it to commune with him from the start and eventually. When we think of the world, We think always in terms of words in the plural of sound, but there is a passage in the writings of the Cartusian of the Middle Ages, which struck me many, many years ago, in which he says, if we think of God, is the unfathomably deep, unplumbable, unsearchable silence. It is from the depth of this silence that can result a word that is adequate to its content. It's not exactly the quotation, but that's the idea. In other words, that the word of God is the total and perfect expression of God himself. Christ, the Son of God, is the visible image of the invisible God. The perceptible (coughs) reality of the infinitely and ultimately mysterious god himself and when we you read in the gospel or in the old testament or the word here and there in different connections i think that strikes me is that The thing that strikes me is the fact that the word, as understood as a Son of God, is a perfect expression of this unfathomable depth of thought of wisdom which is the father but it is totally adequate to it because it is not a material world as the words which we use and which i'm using now it is a world that awakens what is dormant and makes it participate to its own being and nature. I will give you an example. You remember that in St. John's Gospel, there is a passage in which we are told that Christ spoke to a multitude around him, a multitude that included his own disciples. And what he said, shocked, offended, the multitude, and the the wheel went. And Christ turned to his disciples and said, are you also going to go? And Peter, expressing the mind of the others, said, where could we go? You possess the words of eternal life. Now, if you read the gospel, you will see that there is no passage in the gospel in which Christ gives a picture of eternal life and images of it. So it is not that he is the best exponent of what the eternal life is or can be or shall be. His words are such that they reach the very depths of a human being and awake wake at that depth Eternity, which is torment, on which was just body. That is the power of the world. Not to explicit in human terms, but to awaken. Not to create what is not there, but to bring into life what is already there. And so, God sends His Word. And the Word speaks the word of the creative word, which is not a command, which is not a description of what should be. It's a word of love that brings about the existence of what wasn't there, and at the same time, puts it in existence that is free from enslavement, from imprisonment, from limitations. All beings emerge with the right to be themselves, rejoicing in being who and what they are. And then, upon this world, the Spirit of God will breathe. Now, following the words which I have already quoted, we are told in this first word of the Bible that the world was chaos. And when we think of chaos, within the experience of history, We think of destruction, we speak of disorder, we speak of something that could have been beauty or was and has been reduced to ugliness or almost to annihilation. This is not the meaning of chaos in the given case. I think one can understand chaos in a given context as a situation in which there is nothing yet that has acquired a shape, a form. It is a world of possibilities. It is all that is dormant and possible in the created world, both material, mental and otherwise. And when we think of this chaos, this totality of the possible yet not expressed, we find the Spirit of God breathing upon it. And I remember a German translation of this passage uh, by one of the great writers translate a certain uh, good part of the Bible who said who used an expression uh, that the spirit was like a brooding hen over it it was brooding over it, not simply blowing over it like a wind but covering it with its warmth, with its presence sharing with it all the creative possibilities that are in the Holy Spirit of God. And then begins a new process. This chaos, out of this chaos, begins to emerge a whole world step by step. And to this we'll come next time I would like to ask you a question, but these questions are always easy to ask and difficult to answer. Uh, after this talk, do you want me to give other ones, or do you hear that you have heard enough for life? You, you can express your convictions by not coming next time, of course, but if you uh, have criticisms, please tell me. First of all, because I'm not speaking for the pleasure of speaking. I have been speaking for decades and decades, and the process is not something that entrances me anymore as such. I began to run study groups for Russian Voice when I was 14, and that was 70 years ago. So that, um, please tell me, if there is something which you find difficult, you may find difficult the way I think, you may find difficult the vocabulary I use, uh, please help me to be able to convey to you what to me matters passionately, but which I may not be able to convey. So that is one thing. The other thing is that I would like this, in this series of talks, not to limit them to a 45 or 42 minutes uh, address of mine. I would like a response. And therefore, in the future, I would like us after this talk, to have half an hour, three-quarters of an hour for contributions. Not obligatory for questions, because there may be no questions. But you may have something to say, um, to um, make clearer something, or to correct something, or to want an elaboration on a point or another. So please, do uh, think, of what I have said today. And next time, let us meet and um, have my talk plus questions. I would like you to try, when you have questions, to try to ask questions about the actual talk and not about everything under the sun because first of all i'm not able to answer everything under the sun but also there is probably enough in a talk like the one i gave for concrete questions relating to it or making it wider or deeper or correcting it so please try to do this i apologize for not doing it today because I still have a fairly high temperature and all my bones are aching. And for one thing, it's better for you to be at a distance, and for another thing, I don't think I can manage more. So thank you, and I will ask now uh, everyone to keep quiet for a few moments, and then I will ask Father Michael to pray with us.